Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, a small town built on a bend in the Mississippi is ranked among the most dangerous places to live in the United States, despite the small population of approximately 300 residents. Three murders occur on a single property in Horseshoe Lake, Arkansas, separated by two decades. Welcome to Episode 10 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Robert Bogardus Snowden II was named after his grandfather, who had served as a colonel in the Civil War. The colonel married Annie Brinkley, whose family established the Memphis to Little Rock Railroad in eastern Arkansas, which is now named after them. The Snowdens settled in Tennessee, and decades later Robert followed in his grandfather's military footsteps serving in World War II. After the war, he and his wife Grace, who worked as a nurse, moved to Arkansas. Nestled just under 35 miles southwest of the bright lights of Memphis, Horseshoe Lake is now an upmarket area where people go to get away from it all. In the early 20th century, Horseshoe Lake, the second largest lake in the state of Arkansas, was used to transport timber from the area to the Mississippi River where it could be processed. When the Snowdens moved from Tennessee, they built their home on a patch of land spread over 1,000 acres. Their small cabin stood on bricks, and the large screen porch gave a perfect view of the lake. The Snowdens owned a thriving cotton plantation. Robert Snowden was one of the founders of the Wolf River Watershed Association, as well as the Cotton Carnival. In the 1920s, he founded Command Air, which manufactured the luxury personal airplane called the Little Rock. When the Depression hit, Command Air went out of business because there was no market for personal airplanes anymore, and Robert Snowden decided on a new endeavour, farming. Robert had been studying architecture in Sewanee before the war, 
and now he wanted to own a farm. In a 1965 interview with the Arkansas Gazette, Robert said that his great-grandfather had been friends with the philanthropist George Peabody. The family had in fact built the infamous Peabody Hotel in Memphis in 1924 and then sold it in 1953 before buying it back for $2.3 million in 1965 and then selling it two days later to the Sheraton Corporation of America. While the family were exceptionally wealthy, they were also generous. Robert Snowden was involved in the church in Arkansas and donated money to the Holy Cross Episcopal in West Memphis so that they could build a school. He also donated money to build another centre of learning for children of the tenant farmers at Horseshoe Lake and named it Arthur Evans School after one of his employees. Robert's wife, Grace Snowden, served as a board president of what was then called the Cripple Children's Hospital and the Memphis Art Academy, as well as being a board member of the Memphis Garden Club and Salvation Army. The couple had three daughters, Sally, Edie and Happy. As their family grew, so did their house. In 1949, construction began to turn the modest cabin into a 6,000-square-foot, three-storey manor. Robert Snowden then founded the Horseshoe Plantation Corporation. More than 30 cabins had been built along the lake, and each of his daughters had a share. In the decades that followed, the number of people living there increased, and Horseshoe Lake became a town in the mid-80s. The cabins were rented to families who grew up alongside the Snowdens, and a community was born. Snowden House passed from generation to generation and became a bed and breakfast for a time. In 2020, it stood as grand as it had when it was first built. On March 25th, 2020... Deputies from the Crittenden Sheriff's Department were dispatched to Snowden House after the alarm was triggered. They had been told the front door alarm was set off, but when they arrived, the house was quiet, unsurprising for the early hours of the morning. When officers looked through the huge windows, they saw a cat walking around. Presuming the family pet must have triggered the motion sensor alarm, the deputies left. Shortly thereafter, however, the officers were called back when the alarm had been triggered once more. This time they went round to the back of the house and saw that the door was open. The two officers called out to identify themselves before they stepped inside. They did not notice anything out of place, but they could hear footsteps coming from the floor above them. As they walked out to the massive entry hall and began to ascend the stairway, they could smell some type of accelerant. In the living room area at the top of the stairs, there was a pile of clothes and household items that looked like they were dampened, and the smell of accelerant was strong. Before they had a chance to thoroughly inspect the cluttered scene, 
they were interrupted by a door slamming. They heard a man's voice shouting incoherently from behind a closed bathroom door. If it was an intruder, he was trapped, so the officers instructed him to come out. A sound from inside the bathroom echoed through the hallway. It was the man pounding on something. Then, nothing. The house fell silent once more. The officers looked outside and saw that the intruder had taken a risk by jumping out of the bathroom window instead of leaving the room with his hands up. He had escaped from the second story landing on the ground below. The officers ran down the stairs and tried to catch up to him, but he got into a Volkswagen that was parked behind the tree line and sped away. His luck did not last for more than a few seconds. As the car accelerated through the yard, it got stuck in the mud. The intruder had no other option but to abandon the vehicle and run towards the lake. As he neared the shoreline, the deputies shot their taser twice but missed both times. The man jumped into the lake and vanished from sight. The deputies watched and waited to see where he went, but they could not see him. They then went to talk to a neighbour who heard the house alarm. The officers were informed that the homeowner's car was still parked outside, so she must be home. When they went back inside the house, they found a pile of blood-stained clothes, and underneath was a woman's body. She had been beaten and stabbed to death. It was evident that the killer had tried to clean up. He had pulled her body from the bedroom and tried to conceal it with items from the house. Six feet from the victim, the officers found a cloth bag that contained jewellery and a knife. The authorities would subsequently come to realise that there had only been three murders in Horseshoe Lake in a century, and all three had occurred at Snowden House. In the 1990s, Sally Snowden McKay took over the day-to-day responsibilities of Snowden House. One of the daughters of Robert Grace Snowden, she had three daughters of her own. Grace, Catherine and Martha, whom she raised in San Francisco with her ex-husband Robert. Sally was well known in the community and well liked. She had a sound mind for business and she had worked as a certified public accountant and a part-time antiques dealer. Sally had been one of the first women to farm in Arkansas in the 1950s after graduating from Vassar College and when her mother passed away, she became the matriarch of her family, according to her niece, Dottie Jones. On the morning of Tuesday, September 10th, 1996, Bobby Couples saw a bright red late-model Toyota Camry flipped over on its side on Earl Beck Road. The car was wrecked, but there were no occupants inside the vehicle. Couples drove to the local grocery store and asked Levi Glasper if he knew who owned the car. 
Glasper said the only person he knew with a vehicle like that was Sally Snowden McKay. The men drove to Horseshoe Lake to Sally's house. They noticed a white GMC truck in the carport. It had been reversed all the way to the back door blocking it. As they approached the house, they began to smell smoke, which started to pour out of the windows. They called 911 and reported both the crash and the fire. Firefighters raced to the scene and managed to gain entry to the house. The fire seemed to be contained within the living room and kitchen. Through the thick cloud of smoke, they saw two bodies on the floor. The victims were dragged from the burning house to the driveway. They were identified as 75-year-old Sally McKay and her 52-year-old nephew Joseph Lee Baker, who went by Lee. Bobby Couples was still at the scene and said, I was hoping for the best that you're going to save someone. The bodies were burned so bad. Investigators quickly theorised that someone had broken into the home and shot Sally and Lee. The cabin next door, which was occupied by Sally's nephew Lee and his family, had also been broken into and $500 worth of property had been stolen. Lee worked for Sally on the property. He had been collecting rent that morning and they usually went to log the money together. The cabins were rented out to different families and the police began to interview each of them to try and establish a chain of events for that morning. Once the fire was put out and the scene was secure, technicians went in to photograph the house and look for any evidence that survived the blaze. There were several partial prints found, but nothing usable. No shell casings or firearms were located inside either. It was estimated that the murders had taken place at some point between 10.30am and 11.15am and that Sally and Lee had been killed before the fire had been set. An autopsy later confirmed this suspicion. We're trying to come up with some kind of scenario as to what happened. We have to firm up what we suspect, said Wayne Jordan, a spokesperson for the Arkansas State Police. He further remarked that around a month earlier, there had been a fire at Lee's cabin which was located a few hundred feet away from the property where his aunt Sally lived. At the time of the murders, Lee and his family had been residing in the cabin beside Snowden House because the fire had utterly destroyed their home. Investigators needed to determine if the murders and arson were somehow linked to the earlier fire. The Crittenden County Sheriff's Department asked the Arkansas police to assist in the case, as this was the first murder in Horseshoe Lake in 80 years. The Horseshoe Lake Volunteer Fire Department was turned into a makeshift investigative centre. Detectives tried to see if there was any link between this double homicide and a double homicide that occurred in Forest City later the same day. 
hatchback at the scene of the car accident. There was evidence that whoever was driving the car had slammed their head into the windscreen. Blood and hair evidence was found on the interior ceiling of the car, and crime scene technicians discovered latent fingerprints all over the passenger side door frame and door handle. When the vehicle crashed, whoever had been inside climbed out of the broken passenger side window. It was believed that the person had broken into Lee Baker's home, then went to Lee's Aunt Sally's where they were interrupted shooting and killing both Lee and Sally before fleeing in her car. A local officer, Sergeant Walker, made an appeal to the public, asking that if anybody had witnessed the accident or assisted the driver, to please get in touch. Sally McKay and Lee Baker were laid to rest on the same day, September 13, 1996. The joint service for the nephew and aunt was held at Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis. The 1,000-strong congregation filled into the pews and gathered around the church entrance to pay their respects. The service lasted for 50 minutes and included songs by six musicians who were friends of Lee, playing on guitars, a tambourine, a washboard and a piano. Reverend Douglas Bailey asked the mourners to resist attributing the deaths to the will of God, stating, Tragedy happens because we live in a broken world. As the service was being conducted, a friend of Lee, Rudy Williams, stood on the sidewalk outside and played a trumpet. It was a fitting tribute. Following the service, friends and family drove to Snowden House, a colonial-style mansion turned bed and breakfast owned by the family, where they reminisced about happier times. They told stories of Sally and Lee, passed photographs around and listened to a recording of Lee playing his guitar. Sally's close friend and business partner said, Sally would have loved this. Lee would have loved this. Sally McKay much preferred the slower pace of life. After moving back to Horseshoe Lake, she spent much of her time managing the family's properties and collecting and selling antiques at the antique store she owned, Horseshoe Antiques. Sally was also very active with Grace House in Memphis, which is a rehabilitation centre for women offering long-term residential and outpatient treatment and recovery support services. Lee Baker had been born in Memphis, but grew up in Toledo, Ohio. As a young boy, he was captivated by Elvis Presley, and in 1954 he picked up his first guitar, wanting to emulate his idol. His sister Barbara Baker recalled how Lee was so enamoured by Elvis Presley that he wore his hair in the same ducktail fashion as him. In the summers, Lee would come down to Horseshoe Lake to stay with his grandparents. During the day, he worked the fields with farmhands, and then at night he would party with them. 
there was one place in particular that Lee liked to sneak into. Wheeler Taylor's, where he felt as though he was not judged for being overweight. Wheeler Taylor's played mostly R&B and blues music, and it left a lasting impression on young Lee. His sister Barbara said, Lee didn't feel at home in the social world. He found a place where he did fit in, with their music and recreation. In 1955, Lee's mother divorced his father and the family moved to Memphis two years later. Lee was enrolled in East High School and started to perform at gigs, playing the guitar. His first band, Funky Down Home and the Electric Blue Watermelon, was formed in 1960 with his best friend Jimmy Segerson, one of the many bands they founded together. While his style was mostly jazz and blues, he was said to be one of the first psychedelic rockers. When they performed at a music festival in 1967, Lee appeared on stage wearing a dress and riding a motorcycle. The following year he was arrested for selling marijuana. Instead of serving a prison sentence... He opted to serve six months in a federal narcotics rehab hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. Lee was said to put others first. An example was when he broke his parole once to drive his girlfriend home during the Martin Luther King curfews. Lee's next band, Moloch, was formed in 1969. It was a Jimi Hendrix-inspired group named after a deity to which parents would sacrifice their children. Afterwards, Lee would establish Mud Boy and the Neutrons, which fit in well with the Memphis music scene. His friend Sid Selvage stated, Baker always went for the note that wasn't obvious, and he was never afraid to take a chance. His idea was to grab some strings and see what happens, and if it was slightly off, there was bound to be one note that fit. Whatever Lee did, it was always going to be interesting. It was the linchpin of Mud Boy. While Lee was a comical character who was not afraid to showcase his larger-than-life persona, he was said to be quite the perfectionist and felt as though he was never good enough. During the 1980s, he was not as active in the music scene. He was busy raising three children, Joseph, Robert and Ben, with his first wife of 21 years, Carol. Lee was still well known in Horseshoe Lake, where he helped establish pastures and hayfields, along with mowing the lawns of many homeowners and landowners. In 1988, Lee Baker and the Agitators was formed. The band played in numerous clubs throughout Memphis. As a fellow musician, Rick Steff said, Lee was just the genuine article. The real deal. Since Lee Baker could not be at the annual Memphis County Blues Festival, they would hold a memorial in his honour. Following the funeral, Detectives stated that the intense investigation had resulted in positive developments. 
However, they refused to elaborate on what these developments were. A $10,000 reward was offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for the murders. When announcing the reward, prosecutor Brent Davis stood alongside Sally McKay and Lee Baker's family at the home where the pair were killed. Davis stated, There have been significant strides made in the investigation. The funds for the reward had been collected by family members as well as local businesses. A number of local farmers had also put money towards the reward fund. Sally's daughter Katie spoke during the press conference. She said the family appreciated the support of the community, adding, quote, No one in our family can rest until this is resolved. Lee's brother Charles Dewey said it was difficult to know that the killer was still out there somewhere and there was an element of fear that they would return. A witness named Joseph Jones had contacted the police and said that he had seen two young black males travelling in a car that matched the description of Sally McKay's vehicle. Police went through their files to see if there were any young black men with criminal records in the area and decided to question 20-year-old Edric Lewis. Edric lived with his mother Gladys and four siblings in a cabin that had been owned and managed by Sally McKay. Edric was taken to City Hall, where fingerprints and hair samples were taken. He was also subjected to a polygraph examination, which he passed. Edric had been at home with his daughter when he was arrested, but had a solid alibi for the time of the murders. He had been in Forest City signing in with his probation worker. Edric Lewis felt as though the police were trying to pin the murders on him. Detectives questioned him for hours even when his alibi was confirmed. It was clear. The authorities did not have the right man. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Joe Baker, Lee's son, 
had gone to the house on the morning of the murders once he heard there had been a fire. When he reached the house, the bodies had already been pulled outside and covered with a white sheet. Joe had been the one to notice that their family's cabin had also been burglarised. He was asked if he could think of anyone who may have committed the crime, and he said, Travis Lewis. Travis was the 15-year-old brother of Edric Lewis, Edric being the man who had been questioned by the police days earlier. The Lewises grew up with the Bakers. They all lived in Horseshoe Lake and hung around together. Joe Baker explained that a few months earlier, Travis Lewis had been over at their house playing video games and decided to take some games home with him. Joe's father Lee had gone over to Lewis's house and retrieved the games. He also told Lewis's mother what had happened. Investigators went to Hughes High School where Travis Lewis was a 10th grader. They learned that on the day of the murders, Lewis had not been in class. He was suspended from school. When they went to his home to question him, Lewis told the police that he had been in the front yard when the emergency vehicle sped past. His mother Gladys corroborated this. But detectives would find out that Travis Lewis had tried to cash a cheque belonging to Sally McKay the previous year. Lewis was asked to take a series of polygraph examinations. He passed three rounds of questioning before he was taken to the Hughes Police Department with his mother. She was made to sit outside while her son completed another polygraph without a parent or legal representative present. This time, he failed. Upon further questioning, Lewis broke down and told the investigators that his mother did not know he had been suspended from school. He said that he left the house on his bike that morning with the intention of breaking into the baker's home. On the way there, he claimed he met a friend who he said decided to join him. Travis Lewis went into the baker's house while his friend went next door to Sally McKay's home. Shortly afterwards, the friend pulled up outside in Sally's Toyota Camry. Lewis's friend was in a panic and told Lewis that he needed help as he had just shot two people. They went back to Sally's house and tried to move the bodies, but they were too heavy, so his friend went into the bedroom and lit some linen on fire to try and destroy the evidence. Lewis said that they backed Lee Baker's truck into the carport to block the screen door so firefighters wouldn't be able to get inside and then they took off in the stolen Camry. After speeding down Earl Beck Road, the friend lost control of the car and it flipped, landing on its side. The pair climbed out of the wrecked vehicle and ran into the woods. Lewis told the officers that his friend had thrown a twenty-five caliber Colt pistol into the lake afterwards. 15-year-old Travis Lewis was arrested. His fingerprints were taken and he was booked for the robbery. The police asked around about Lewis's friend. 
A friend's cousin came forward and told the investigating officers that he had gone to the hospital on the day of the murder under a false name. He was missing a front tooth. His cousin also said that Lewis's friend had implicated himself in the crime. When officers questioned the young man, he claimed to have had nothing to do with it and said he had been with a girl all day on the day of the murders. Investigators went to corroborate this alibi, and the girl backed him up. The friend had fingerprints and hair samples taken and gave a DNA sample. When no evidence matched the samples he had given, he was released without charge. As the person Travis Lewis claimed pulled the trigger has not been charged in relation to this crime, they have been referred to as the friend in this episode. When experts compared the evidence found in the Toyota, it pointed towards Travis Lewis. His palm print was matched to one found on the windshield and passenger door frame. The hair found on the interior ceiling was also a direct match. Travis Lewis's family were in shock. They could not believe that a child taking another child's computer game would lead the Bakers to suspect him of a double homicide. Many of those who knew Lewis were also surprised to hear that he had been arrested for such a serious crime. Lewis's family were hard-working, with his mother employed as a waitress and cook, and his grandfather A.D. Smith cleaned fish that people caught at the lake. Mary Couples said that she had known the family for years. She stated, He never gave you any trouble. He didn't have an attitude. I still think there's somebody else, and he's probably too terrified to say anything. To me, to look at him, you wouldn't think of him as a murderer. He's so scrawny. The community could not believe that one of their own had been charged with the murders. Many had speculated that it was an outsider who committed the killings. Beth Baldwin, who owned the local grocery store and cafe, said, I think it shocked everybody. This boy is real polite. Everything is yes ma'am, no ma'am. Plus, he's smart. He's above average in school. He's so soft-spoken you have to listen to him real close or you couldn't hear him. Travis Lewis turned 16 that October, but he was charged as an adult and ordered to be held at the Crittenden County Jail. While he did not immediately disclose what had led investigators to Lewis, Police spokesperson Wayne Jordan stated to the media, We are continuing to investigate. Not all loose ends are wrapped up. A spokesperson added that there could be an additional arrest made. Following Travis Lewis's arrest, police divers embarked on a search of the lake behind Sally's home. They were looking for the murder weapon. Four police divers would take turns for around five and a half hours, searching predominantly in the immediate vicinity of Sally's private dock. 
Lee Baker's son Joe watched as the divers scoured the waters. He told reporters from the commercial appeal that he hoped they could wrap it up and that it was bringing some resolution to the whole thing. Frustratingly, searches turned up nothing and B.J. Patterson, the director of the Sheriff's Office Reserve and Emergency Services, addressed the media, telling them that the gun was likely buried. Travis Lewis was ordered to stand trial on two counts of capital murder and one count of burglary. A component of capital murder is that it is committed while in the commission of another felony. The murders had been committed alongside arson and burglary, both felonies. Since Lewis had been charged as an adult, if he were convicted this meant that he could be sentenced to life in prison or even executed. An arraignment hearing was held in November 1996 before Judge Sam Turner. Judge Turner was surprised when Lindsay Fairley, the deputy prosecutor, offered three, quote, criminal informations, accusing Lewis of two counts of capital murder and one count of burglary. A criminal information is a formal charging document that outlines the charges against a defendant and the basis for those charges. It does not require a grand jury to grant an indictment to begin a criminal case in the judicial system. It has to be a statement of facts presented by an official under oath for approval by a judge. Judge Turner asked Prosecutor Fairley if he had anything in a narrative form to present to the court. The prosecutor replied that he did not, but he said that during the investigation... Travis Lewis had become a suspect and investigators had evidence linking him to the crime scene. Describing Lewis's involvement, Lindsay Fairley added, He was subsequently interviewed and has made a statement and confirms his presence at the scene. Fairley also said that he did not want to disclose much more information about the investigation because there was a chance that other charges would be filed and other defendants would be charged. Judge Turner would ask Prosecutor Fairley if Travis Lewis made a confession to breaking into the home, to which he replied yes. The judge then asked if Lewis made a confession to the murders, to which the prosecutor replied, Judge, I have not seen that statement. I don't have that information. The prosecuting attorney Brent Davis was asked if the $10,000 reward had led to Lewis's arrest. He replied that would be determined at a later date. The burglary charge was not in relation to the burglary of Sally McKay's home where the murders and arson had occurred. It was for Lee Baker's cabin. Lewis had allegedly stolen more than $500 worth of items from the home. It was not disclosed what had supposedly been stolen, nor was there any mention of the burglary at Sally's home or the arson. The public defender representing Lewis felt that there was insufficient evidence for his client to be remanded into custody, 
but Judge Turner disagreed. Members of Travis Lewis's family sat stunned in the gallery. Sally McKay had been close to their family for generations. Lewis's grandparents had even rented a property from her. They lovingly referred to her as Miss Sally and spoke about how kind she had always been. While his family and neighbours portrayed the teenager as a quiet and shy boy, the police spoke of a completely different type of youth. Hughes Police Chief Ed Gardner said that they had plenty of dealings with Travis Lewis and said that in the past he had thrown bottles and rocks at police cars. In the months prior to his arrest, Lewis had been charged as a juvenile with criminal mischief, curfew violation, littering and aggravated assault. Travis Lewis would sit in jail, held without bond for 14 months before further legal proceedings were scheduled. In January 1998, a preliminary trial hearing was held. Lewis's defence attorney, Bill Llewellyn, said that the case was taking so long to go to trial because the investigation file was large and because he was an Arkansas state senator, which meant he could be absent from his law practice for several months at a time while the legislator met. Attorney Llewellyn said it was one of the largest investigations he had ever worked on and that in order to save Travis Lewis's life, he would try to prove that Lewis did not commit the crimes he was charged with, murder, burglary and arson. The trial was set for April 1998. Travis Lewis was a young black man in a southern state. According to his attorney, there were not many black jury members in the late 90s in Arkansas, and Lewis was accused of killing two white people. Travis Lewis spoke to his attorney and family about how scared he was. He was adamant that he had no part in the murders, but said he was too afraid to go to trial in case he was sentenced to death. On April 7th, Travis Lewis pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder, burglary and theft. Prosecutor Lindsay Fairley, who had recommended the plea agreement, said, The families felt it would be traumatic to go through a trial. It was a reasonable disposition. Travis Lewis was sentenced to 28 and a half years for the murders of Sally Snowden McKay and Lee Baker. He also received a five-year sentence for the robbery which was to be served concurrently. Then age 17, Travis Lewis was told he would not be eligible for parole for another 20 years. While Sally McKay and Lee Baker's family were relieved that Travis Lewis had been convicted and sent to prison with a lengthy sentence, there were people who believed the police got it wrong. Gladys Lewis believed her son was not guilty of the murders. After Sally and Lee's death, Edie, Sally's sister, took over the management of Snowden House. 
Sally's daughter Martha McKay moved back for a time to help her aunt renovate the property. She even called in with Gladys Lewis to tell her that she believed that Gladys's son could not have committed the murders alone. Martha had been opposed to the death sentence and accepted the plea deal Travis Lewis had been offered to spare his life. The victim's family were divided. While Martha believed justice had not been served, Lee Baker's son Joe was convinced it had. Joe even left college and became a sheriff's deputy after his father's death. Martha eventually moved from San Francisco to Horseshoe Lake and purchased Snowden House. She began renovating it to include architectural details such as a grand marble floored entrance with a sweeping staircase, an antique crystal chandelier and a Carrara marble fireplace. Martha had always loved Snowden House and had an abundance of fond memories there when growing up. When she took over, she brought love and happiness to a place that had been haunted by the tragic murders back in 1996. When Travis Lewis had pleaded guilty in 1998, Martha, who was a Buddhist, forgave him for what he had done and befriended him. Over the years, they exchanged letters, and Martha even got the case reinvestigated in 2011. Martha kept insisting that there was something they were missing, that Lewis could not have committed the murders and that he was simply a bystander caught up in the middle of it. Crittenden County Sheriff Mike Allen stated that Martha had felt pity for Lewis because he was so young when the murders took place. He said, Even in the case file there was speculation that there was somebody with Travis Lewis, because a witness reported seeing two people in the car leaving the scene back in 96. I talked to Martha McKay in 2011, and we tried to reopen that investigation. We worked a bunch of dead-end leads, even went to the penitentiary and talked to Travis Lewis. Lewis indicated there was somebody with him. Martha McKay even hired a private investigator to help. When she couldn't assist Travis Lewis any further, she helped his mother Gladys. Martha hired Gladys as a housekeeper at Snowden House, which was highly successful as a stunning wedding venue for society's elite. Martha had invested over $100,000 in the restoration of the property. In 2012, she was interviewed by Memphis Magazine, who dubbed her the Lady of the Lake. In the interview, she recalled her childhood memories of summers spent at Snowden House. She said, I felt like I was royalty with the big house and servants. Everything was fresh from the garden, fresh eggs and all, and we even had a peach orchard. We got to swim every day, and it was just ideal. When Travis Lewis became eligible for parole, Sally McKay and Lee Baker's families contested his release with victim impact statements. 
Martha sent one in favour of Lewis's release. She believed he had served his time and had forgiven him years prior. A principle of Buddhism is atonement, forgiving others and ourselves in order to get closer to enlightenment. Martha McKay lived by these principles. Travis Lewis had grown up in the prison system, moving around state institutions once he reached adulthood and had always maintained that he was innocent. Frank Bird, who had driven Martha to prison for visitation, had warned her several times that he did not think it was a good idea. Lewis's first parole request was denied, and when he was eligible again in 2018, Martha went to the parole hearing with Gladys Lewis. Travis Lewis was granted parole after spending two decades in prison. Upon his release, Martha truly took him under her wing. She gave him a job at Snowden House as a handyman, against the wishes and without the knowledge of her family members. Sally and Lee's relatives found out about Lewis's release through Joe Baker, who was now working at the sheriff's office. They had all told Martha to keep her distance from Lewis, but she believed in his innocence. Initially, Martha, Gladys and Travis Lewis worked well together at Snowden House. Gladys said Martha was like family to her and would always greet her with a hug. Things were fine for a time, but then Gladys warned Martha to keep her distance from Lewis and she feared he was going back to his old ways. Lewis's older brother had asked him to stay away from Horseshoe Lake because he would never be able to shake the reputation he had there, and not everyone would be as forgiving as Martha McKay. In early 2020, Martha fired Travis Lewis. She had recently sold a chandelier for a large sum of cash, and the money had gone missing from the house. She did not file a police report. She simply just asked Lewis to leave. On March 24, 2020, 24 years after the murders of Sally McKay and Lee Baker, another tragedy would strike the influential Snowden family. Sally's daughter... 63-year-old Martha McKay would be found dead in her home, Snowden House at Horseshoe Lake. Police responded to an alarm at the address, and when they arrived they found that the back door was wide open. As they cleared the home they heard a man shouting upstairs, who then surprised them by launching himself out of an upstairs window onto the grass below. Responding officers chased the man. One deployed his taser twice, but missed. The man jumped into a car and attempted to flee across the garden. Still, when the vehicle became stuck in the mud, he jumped out of the car and proceeded to run towards Horseshoe Lake. Much to the astonishment of the responding officers, the man jumped into the water. He never resurfaced. 
Back at the home, Martha McKay's body was found at the top of the stairs, wrapped up tightly in a blanket. She had been stabbed and bludgeoned to death. Nearby, police found a bag containing valuables as well as a bloody kitchen knife, the murder weapon. Rescue teams were called to the scene where Arkansas Game and Fish used sonar equipment to locate the man who had fled from the home and thrown himself in the lake. They successfully retrieved the man's body, who had drowned. He was identified as Travis Lewis. Investigators believed that he had been planning to burn the house down after the murder. Criminal Investigation Division Chief Tom Grooms told the press. She was actually laid on the floor and everything was piled on top of her. I believe he killed her in the bedroom and dragged her into the living room as he was trying to clean up behind himself. He was taking everything that needed to be discarded and throwing it on top of her. There were blankets, but it was anything bloody piled on top of her empty household cleaner containers, like he was putting it all in one place to deal with all at once. He had done quite a bit of cleaning in the bedroom, it looked like. With their only suspect dead, the case remained open, but Chief Groom said, We believe Travis Lewis did it. He was on the scene and then ran from the officers and drowned. We believe it may be intentional that he drowned himself, but we don't know that for sure. Deputies said he swam out a little ways, stopped and put his head under, and just never came back up. Whether that's intentional or not, it left the impression it was intentional. An autopsy found evidence of methamphetamine, cocaine and marijuana in Travis Lewis's system. Martha McKay's cause of death was determined to be multiple stab wounds and blunt force trauma to the head. Following her murder, tributes came pouring in. Her sister Katie Hutton posted on Facebook, She is irreplaceable in my heart. While Martha had returned to Snowden House, much of the family could not return due to the horrific memories that it held. Martha's sister Katie said, I used to have nightmares. I must have known it was a bad place, that things were going to happen. Somebody was trying to warn me. Stay away. Martha was described by her loved ones as big-hearted, gregarious, and she was always up for an adventure. Katie Hutton told People magazine, There was something about her that people really loved. She left an impression on people. She had that gift. Investigators have not been able to determine if Travis Lewis murdered Martha for revenge, or much like her mother, as she had disturbed him while he was robbing her home. Gladys Lewis said that she had lost both her son and her friend. 
Joe Baker felt as though he wished Martha had listened to her family when they warned her about Travis Lewis. Still, others thought it was circumstances that made Lewis a killer. No one knows if Travis Lewis acted alone in the murders of Sally McKay and Lee Baker, but there is little doubt that he killed Martha McKay 24 years later. Snowdon House stood proudly on the edge of Horseshoe Lake for 100 years. It has now been sold and is in the process of being demolished. Lee Baker's sister said that the house was an anchor in the community, much like the women who managed it, Martha and Sally McKay. The Crittenden County Sheriff's Department believes that Travis Lewis acted alone in the 1996 murders, and the files are closed. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Maybe. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening.